Signatures and certificates go hand in hand. What and how do people feel when they sign a document registered with their personal mark? And what happens when the name fades away entirely? The answer to these questions came to me when I bought a horseshoer's certificate from 1913 and a picture of the man who signed it. I then dug up more information about farriery in the U.S. Every horseshoe had to be hand-forged. Hear from the widow who last had it hung up on her wall. She wouldn't take a dime. And finally, I uncover insightful perspectives from a distant relative. I'm sure that's that's why she tried to find someone, and so she just took a shot, and yeah. (laughs) Stay till the end. After this. Welcome to Object Obscura. This is the historical investigative podcast about people, objects, and their stories. I'm your host, Thatcher Warakess. Episode 8, Horseshoer, Heritage, Health. Many antique objects catch my attention immediately. That was the case with this large framed certificate in a Tucson antique shop, Patriot House Antiques. I generally don't stop and look at framed pieces of paper, but this one was ornate and large. It's about the size of a small movie poster in a newer frame. It had a green, intricate printed design around the words in the middle like a frame of ink separating the blank from the important. This green border reminded me of American currency, the overlapping, undulating designs that are abstractly floral in the corners. Then the words appear, Master Horseshoer's National Protective Association, in varying fonts, gothic to a playful serif. It's so peculiar. Below that is a small vignette drawing of two men with a horse, The rest of the document has that spindly, italicized cursive, and a bunch of underscored blanks not filled in. There's an embossed star-shaped sticker on the bottom, with the letters NPA. Then in large brown faded type are three letters and a date that rest behind the text, like a watermark. NPA. With the P in the shape of a horseshoe, and the year? 1913. Then Fariba, the antique store owner, told me something that made me make this episode. She mentioned that a framed picture, one resting on a small chair, was of the man who apparently signed this certificate. I was shocked. On the tag of the framed photo, it said, Picture of Farrier standing over Anvil. Before I dove into who this could be, I first wanted to know what a farrier was. A farrier is not a veterinarian, but most farriers do work hand in hand with with veterinarians. This is Eric Nygaard. He is the historian for the AFA. American Farriers Association, headquartered in Kentucky. He told me he'd never seen a certificate like this before. When I spoke with him on Zoom, I was actually joined by Martha Jones, the executive director of the AFA. So essentially, horseshoes are made to protect a horse's hooves so that they can walk comfortably. But not all horses need shoes. It all depends on the client and type of horse. It's like a golfer wears golf cleats, a football player wears a, wears a different type of cleat. It's the same thing with horses. It depends on the job they do, depends on the type of shoes they wear. 
every horse you have be hand forged. In order to hand forge each horseshoe as a farrier, you need a lot of tools for very specific things. Your main tools were your, were your anvil, your forge, and your hammer. And then you need tongs to hold your stock, and you need horseshoe and nails, um, nippers for trimming the foot. This stock he's referencing is the iron bar stock where the horseshoe is shaped into the right size. The horse comes into the shop and you, you, you evaluate his feet, you, look, you measure his feet. You hand forge his shoes, you, make, you build his shoes. And you fit them and you nail them on. And it, it sounds like a simple process, but it's probably an hour and a half, two hour process by the time you, you do all that. It's a dangerous profession. Most farriers inspect the horse's hoof with their backs to the beast. And these are large animals. But when the horseshoe is nailed on, it doesn't hurt them. Their feet are made of keratin, same as our fingernails. Farriery has a long history throughout the world. And you can even see that with the origin of the word farrier. It comes from the Latin word ferrum, meaning iron. It's another word for blacksmith or horseshoer. That's what it was back in the day, is that farriers strictly were blacksmiths. These days, blacksmiths like to be called blacksmiths and farriers like to be called either farriers or horseshoers. Farriery has been a profession since the 14th century. And it wasn't until around the 19th century when it was attributed to horseshoe making. I looked back at the certificate and photo. I realized that indeed each of those blanks were signed and filled in. But due to its 108 year age, the pen ink most likely faded due to sunlight. In the field of the certificate grantee, I can faintly see parts of the man's signature, but it's just impossible to read. The photo of the farrier is eye-catching. A tall, mustachioed, firm-jawed young man stands over an anvil. Horseshoes and tools are strewn around him on the floor. He stands in front of a blank backdrop, as if taken in a studio. Then I look back at the certificate. On the very bottom of the document, there are four large underscored fields, each subscript field has a position of the people from the NPA. National President, President, the National Secretary, and Secretary. And only one name was clearly legible. I guess this guy used the best pen ink. The name was Andrew Morrissey, the Vice President of the NPA from Wisconsin. The NPA started in 1892. It actually says this on the certificate. This was the height of other tradesmen unions, like the Union of Journeyman Horseshoers but the Master Horseshoers Union was a little harder to find information on. From my research, it was more of a protective act for the fairs, more of a union and a price fixing thing. And that's why they weren't around that long. I think they were around for less than, you know, 25, 30 years. Many of the unions and protective organizations blossomed during the 20th century, from masons to factory workers to tradesmen. They were designed to stabilize worker morale and community. Some of them grew so large, they had chapters in many states just like the NPA. It was Wisconsin, Minnesota, and New York were the three states that came up. Even though the association home base was in New York, they had 313 national chapters, or they, they called them locals. And on the document, they call them local associations. I hope that speaking with Eric and Martha from the AFA would help me get closer to finding who this particular farrier was. I had learned some clues that could help me, but from the pictures I sent, they couldn't even see any handwriting at all. So, I went back to Fariba at Patriot House Antiques, where this all started. I spoke with her a while. She kept mentioning to me that the picture and certificate were brought in to be sold by a family member of the farrier. 
I thought that this was too good to be true. Fariba told me that her name was Pat Hirsch, the widow of the grandson in the picture. After many attempts at talking with Pat Hirsch, I finally got a hold of her to get the full story. Okay, so this is your um, late husband's father, is that correct? No, my late husband was a horseshoer in this town, and he advertised in the paper, and an elderly woman called and said, my grandfather had been a horseshoer, and I have all his stuff. We're downsizing. Would you like it? So backtracking here, these were indeed not heirlooms from Hirsch's family. They were just given to her husband one day by this woman. I had all these questions about the certificate I thought could be answered in this call with Pat. But instead, we talked about her late husband, Lewis, who was a horseshoer. He knew by the time he was four years old that he wanted to be a horseshoer. And he was at preschool and a nice man came and shooed a pony. And he watched him from the picnic table. And he said, that's what I want to do. And he always did. Lewis had a farrier business in Tucson since 1981 and just seemed like the best thing farrier there ever was. He was a darn good one. When I watched him shoe a horse, you couldn't even see his fingers. He was so fast. He actually went to a farrier school in Tucson in the late 1970s. They're still around today. What are the odds that these farrier items landed into the hands of another farrier? Like Pat mentioned earlier, an elderly woman looked up a farrier business in a phone book that happened to be her husband's. This is what she remembers that day, getting the certificate and picture. It was given to us by dear Lou Weaver. She wouldn't take a dime. Really? We sat in their kitchen and ate peanut butter cookies with her and her husband. When she shook my husband's hand, she says, you're a horseshoer, she said. My grandfather's hands were so much rougher. This was around the year 2006. What I discern from this is that the man in the picture is in fact the grandfather of Lou Weaver, a man who apparently had rough hands, something that Pat's husband, Lewis, was embarrassed by because he couldn't shoe horses enough to build callus. This story is rife with coincidences. A lady named Lou calls up a man named Lewis and gives him farrier objects for free. The only other thing she remembers is that Lou and her husband lived in Saddlebrook, the most northern neighborhood in the Tucson area. And that was my lead. So Pat and her husband had the document and picture for 15 years, not knowing the full story of where and who they were related to. Pat and I were on a mission to strike the iron while it was hot and find some answers. I went to Google for an obituary search of Lou and Saddlebrook, who may have died from 2010 to 2020. I found it, but her name was Lou, spelled L-U, short for Lucille, and the weaver was her husband's name. Her maiden name, Switzer, is where the story takes off. On an online directory, I saw that she had children. One daughter lived in Phoenix. So I sent her a letter and I got a voicemail within three days. She wanted to talk. My name is Judy Sullivan. I am a retired teacher, but I'm talking to you today because you reached out with me about my mother's paternal grandfather, who was a farrier in Wisconsin. So Judy is the great-granddaughter of the man in the photo and certificate signer. His name is Joseph R. Switzer. And Lucille, who gave these to Pat and Saddlebrook, is Judy's mother. My mom grew up in um, Kenosha, Wisconsin, which used to be an in industrial factory town or whatever. Her mom, Lucille, was born in 1924 in Kenosha, in South Wisconsin, near the Milwaukee border. 
This was the first clue to where this story mostly takes place, in Wisconsin, where one of the NPA local associations was located, a cold and critical area for farrier work. Judy then shares some memories about her great-grandfather, Farrier. I remember her talking about Grandpa Joe. That was how we always heard about him. And I knew that he made horseshoes in terms of like his, his work life and so forth. My mom never said anything about it, and we never thought to ask, I guess. It's fascinating that Judy remembers as much as she does. Judy is now in her 60s, born just after Mr. Switzer died in 1956. Joseph R. Switzer, his funeral was on the day my brother was born. Judy's brother, Doug, is actually really into their family history. He was sending photos to Judy that she then passed on to me. I wanted to find any connection to Mr. Switzer and the Master Horseshoers Union other than the certificate. I did some digging on the Master Horseshoers NPA. One document immediately popped up, a court transcript. It was from 1916, the final decision of the case. The United States of America Petitioner versus the Master Horseshoes National Protective Association of America et al. Defendants. Final decree. So the U.S. government sued the NPA for a conspiracy to restrain trade and commerce because they were price-fixing the tools and materials sold directly to farriers, cutting out the independent makers. Even though there were some illegal dealings here, turns out no harm was done in the eyes of the court. It is further ordered, adjudged, and decreed that the Master Horseshoes National Protective Association, New York and Michigan, are not restrained from maintaining said organizations and not in violation of the law. Cases like this weren't out of the ordinary, but the reason I bring this up is because this particular case only lists the New York and Michigan corporations, not the one in Wisconsin, the one that this particular document is most likely from. In addition, my, my mother had written some beginning of a, <laughs> her biography. There's a lot of, a lot of quite uh, detailed memories of her school years, you know, what the name This is Judy talking about her mother, Lucille. She's reading a written interview her mom did with Doug. In the late 1990s, my brother apparently asked my mom uh, to jot down some notes about her growing up. This handwritten account is really cool. She actually sent it to me. Lucille responded to a letter from Doug in 10 small flipbook pages about her life in Wisconsin until she moved to the Tucson area. From what Judy, Doug, and I could discern is that Joseph Switzer was born in Ontario, Canada in 1871. He had three kids with his wife, Lottie, a girl and two boys. Mr. Switzer's daughter died at 11 years old, and another son died years later. The only child left was the eldest, Raymond, who was Lucille's father. There's also a family photo of Joseph, his wife, Lottie, and their three children. So one of those was my grandfather. He was the oldest. She started sending me more pictures of all of them. One of just Joseph Switzer close up, to the photo of Mr. Switzer at his daughter's funeral, standing next to his brothers. It's amazing to see the progression of a man over 30 years of photos. His features are so prominent. He has a strong forehead that creates shadows on the tops of his piercing eyes. The only thing I noticed was that he was younger in the stage picture that I had. I still had no idea about the stage barrier photo. It's the only snapshot of Joseph Switzer directly related to his work. One of the photos Judy sent me had a studio stamp on the back. 
one from Detroit, Michigan. Looking on Ancestry.com, I found that Detroit is where he immigrated to from Canada in 1892. He lived there until the early 1900s, when he moved to Wisconsin with his children. I was excited to get all of this news. I told Pat Hirsch everything I found, talking with Judy, the great-granddaughter, and the court case. She was elated. Pat sent me a text with some pictures of her house and told me she actually might have other objects that belonged to Mr. Switzer. I drove to meet her immediately. So yeah, you can sit, I guess, and I might be a little bit better for that corner there. Okay. This is Pat Hirsch, the widow of the Ferrier Lewis, who had the certificate in this house for over a decade. We are inside her Tucson adobe bricked casita home. White bricks and a hitching rail, where you tie a horse, greeted me when I walked in the door. When we first met at a restaurant, she waved and gave me a howdy, wearing a cowboy hat. Pat is tall and lanky, with short stringy gray-brown hair and a vivacious smile. She's very open and talkative. She wears special thick glasses for her glass eye that reduces phone screen lighting. So it was great to see her in person, since texting was a strain for her. The cute dog is here. There's Pal. Look how cute is. she oh is. My Isn't she the cutest dog wow. you ever saw? So cute. She is just so cute. She's talking to me about the dogs that she's had, all together in one frame. We are now sitting in her covered patio, the exact room where the farrier certificate hung for 15 years. She lives way in the northwest of Tucson. It's so remote that from her property, you can barely see any homes. Just the Tucson mountain range and the dry Santa Cruz riverbed in her backyard. This is Lewis coming in the chute, getting ready. She then finds some pictures of her late husband, Lewis, who recently passed away in 2018. One observation I noted in her home there isn't a foot on her walls that isn't covered by a picture frame or horse paraphernalia. In the surprisingly dark room, we're looking at photos of her dogs under a full leather saddle hanging above us from the ceiling. And on every wall is a framed picture, document, poster relating to equestrian everything. It's almost like a museum, something that Pat told me she wanted to make this place. The main reason I'm here is not only to uncover the item she says belongs to Mr. Switzer, but also to learn more about the life of a farrier. Lewis bought the property before I met him. He bought the place and the mule stayed with his parents while he was still doing lots of uh, mining surveying. She actually gave me an extra business card from Lewis's farrier work. It was a white card with a crude drawing of their home, a cactus and a hitching rail. His company initials were HSC. It apparently was Spanish, Herradura Santa Cruz. Herradura meaning horseshoer or blacksmith, and Santa Cruz being the dry riverbed in their backyard. This is what she suspects Lucille looked up in the phone book 15 years ago, not knowing anything else until they came to Saddlebrook. Though Judy, Mr. Switzer's great-granddaughter, never saw their certificate before, she remembered that her mom Lucille gave it to somebody years ago. Here's Judy again. And I remember when they took the, were looking for a farrier, I remember hearing that story as she was looking for somebody in the phone book. I thought a lot about what this meant for Lewis, to be called up and given family heirlooms of a farrier from another life. In every conversation I've had with Pat, she has mentioned Lewis's declining health. He suffered from mental health issues. That mixed with the rigorous work of making horseshoes in the Arizona sun was a lot for Lewis by the early 2000s. This is a really interesting article to read. Pat hands me a newspaper article, one from the Northwest Explorer with a transcribed interview and a long headline. 
Moranin Lewis Hirsch for the past 15 years has specialized in outfitting your trusty steeds. Next to the Q&A sections is a picture of Lewis, a wry smile on his bearded face as he stands over an anvil, striking a horseshoe. It actually kind of reminds me of the picture of Joseph Switzer. Pat thought so too. And as soon as I saw that picture of that guy in front of his anvil, I thought, boy, he looks like Lewis. Hmm. I thought, look at his shoulders. Did you did you notice that too? Yeah, that was definitely. Yeah. Who's to know that he's not his great, great uncle? You know? Yeah. I was a little taken aback by this. They do have some similarities, but Pat has insisted on some familial connection between these two farriers. One of the reasons is because Lewis was actually adopted. And who knows whether he's the long-lost great-grandson of the guy in the picture, because he was adopted at birth. His parents didn't tell him he was adopted until he was 14. Oh, wow. Talk about screwing up somebody's brain chemicals. For Lewis, this certificate and picture of a horseshoer was everything. He hung it up prominently on his wall, as if it was somebody he knew, or someone he wanted to know. What it did was help his mental health so much, because he always wondered who he really was. Though it is merely impossible to find out if his biological parents were somehow related to Mr. Switzer, I do believe they are connected by the same goals and love for animals. I look at that picture of Lewis and Mr. Switzer side by side. Both have facial hair, both wielding a mallet, and standing in front of an anvil, proud to be farriers. Back inside Pat's home, I pointed up above the door for the main reason I was here to see her. Is this one of them here? That... Yes, those are the two horseshoes, so the two one... that are up there, and they've been up there ever since the day Lou gave them to us. We can take them down if you want. She pulls out all the horseshoe nails and puts them aside. How he uh, put his name on that, I just find that so fascinating. Well, he must have had a stamp that he just went like yeah, that when it was just on. Boom. The horseshoes were hung above her door, with the ends pointing up. For good luck, I was told. We're talking about the name that's on each horseshoe, Joseph R. Switzer. His name is actually stamped into the bar stock of the iron shoe. You know, if you want to hold it in your hand, God, this is so neat. I was holding a Canadian man's hand-struck piece of work that he'd been doing since the 1880s. I was in shock. One was small and perfectly U-shaped, and the other was a corrective shoe with a little offshoot to one side. Pat then goes into another room as if she had forgotten something and comes back with a pile of books. You know, anyway, here are some interesting books and I think Lou might have given us this one. Most of them were about horses, Tucson, and the Southwest. Thumbing through them, eyes gazing through the words, I was stopped in my tracks and I just started laughing. <laughs> His name's popping up everywhere. Wow. You guessed it, a book that belonged to Mr. Switzer. On the first page of a book titled Scientific Horseshoeing was a stamp with the name Joseph R. Switzer. The next page had something handwritten. Xmas 1906. Look at that. Pat vaguely remembers Lucille giving her some books and horseshoes that day, 15 years ago. Taking a break, we put the books in a pile and horseshoes back up over the doors. I realized that they were nailed in by horseshoe nails, the ones designed to go into the horse's hoof to keep the horseshoe on. Out of the blue... She mentioned that her husband proposed to her with a ring, custom-made out of a horseshoe nail. That's like the most Tucson thing I've ever heard. Pat leads me through the hallway of pictures, a pictorial timeline of Lewis's life. 
Oh, I'm sure that we're walking by all kinds of stuff. I'd... Oh, here, here he is. On, did I show you this one? Did you get a picture of this one? She points to some pictures of Lewis's bull riding in rodeo days. These were taken by the famous female photographer, Louise Serpa. So, the garage is easiest. We're walking to a small garage just outside the main home. This is where Lewis worked and the place his fairy tools have sat for years. So this stuff hasn't been out here in a while. It hasn't been looked at in a long time. It was a life that should have been is what it is. Right. My farrier's life that should have been more than what it was. We enter a dark one-car garage. Towards the garage door is something she wants me to look at. It's his toolbox. Anyway, this is his shoeing oh, wow. look at that. box. And it, it used to have a handle here, and we could pick it up and take uh, it in. We still can, but it's probably... Shall we take this one out, too? Sure, yeah, if we can. Everything that AFA historian Eric mentioned for a typical farrier was in Lewis's toolbox. You know, all these certain things that have a specific purpose. Here's another pair of nippers. Those are some shoes. Wait, wait. Fingernails. Oh, wow. These are, these are called rasps. This is a file yeah. and this is a rasp. Okay. Nails uh -huh. like this. I'm not sure where he'd have the box, but it'd be right there and he'd grab whatever tool he needed, just like as if he were at a, a surgeon. Standing in this space where a farrier lived and worked, talking to his widow, I'm overcome with the feeling of fulfillment. This story is starting to make more sense to me. The journey of a horseshoer who was inspired by another. Lewis adored the certificate and picture, and probably thought that the man was an inspiration. It is striking to me that, right around the time when Lewis could not horseshoe any longer, this certificate and picture were plopped on his lap. Here's Pat again on the phone. And Lou Weaver herself, I believe, that she had, you know, cried a couple of tears of joy that, that her stuff was going to go to somebody who appreciated it, and we have. We really, really have, you know? During our phone calls and in-person interviews these past months, I realized how much these connections matter, especially the ones related to horses. Pat was a horse girl before she met Lewis and had farriers of her own. The story of how Pat even met Lewis is just insane. This certificate and picture can't be told without knowing about the people who saved it for 15 years. My leg was broken in a mudslide when I was living in California in San Francisco. And I said, that says it, I'm going to Texas. And my lucky break was that my car broke down in Tucson and I never left. She drove out in her 69 wagon in 1987 and the story just gets weirder. One of the first jobs Pat had was working at a Texaco gas station in Tucson. She was living with a boyfriend at the time. I had a boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And he was a real jerk and he was jealous of my dog. This stupid jerk took my dog and dumped her at the end of Ida and told me that she ran away. I moved out immediately. So she moved out with nowhere to go and asked her boss, the one at the gas station, for a place to stay. Then she looked for a more stable place in the newspaper. So I picked up the classifies, room for rent. Pet okay, $85. She called a man that day for the $85 room listing. It was Lewis. And when he answered hello, she knew he was the one. Pat's cute dog, the one that was kidnapped by the ex-boyfriend, was rescued very close to Lewis's address. So Pat's dog actually led her to Lewis in the most unexpected way. The house I visited, Pat, is the same one that Lewis advertised in the newspaper in 1989. All of a sudden, 
I am the caregiver for this wonderful man. They got married one year later and lived there together until he passed away in 2018. I was excited to share everything I found with Judy, Joseph Switzer's great-granddaughter, from Pat's horseshoes to the books. In fact, I'm still in possession of three horseshoes he's made. I think my brother has a few more. I have one over a bedroom door in my house. I have a couple others. She also had Switzer's horseshoes hung over her door, just like Pat did. These ones were smaller with a shiny gold tint to them, but they had that all-familiar stamped name. Judy told me that throughout the 20th century, the Switzer family was well off. With the studio photos, well-dressed children, and interest in education, it made sense that branding your name was important. Most farriers today don't brand their horseshoes with their names. It is definitely reserved for a well-respected tradesman. One night, I was flipping through the photos Judy sent me of Joseph Switzer, ones from Michigan to Wisconsin. Each one had picture studio stamps on the back of them. Maybe my picture had a stamp on the back. When I pulled the piece of cardboard backing out, I saw a certificate. But not like the horseshoe one. In between the picture of Mr. Switzer and a cut piece of cardboard was a certificate for Lucille Weaver, Judy's mom. I literally couldn't believe this. It was hidden in the picture that I had been carrying around with me this whole time. I took out the small matted paper, awarded to Lucille in 1977 for completing her children's psychology degree in Wisconsin. She was a school psychologist. Mom went to college, studied psychology, and she went back to school to get her master's degree when we were kids. I sent her mom's certificate back to Judy, as she was really close with her mom and would want a piece of her ancestry returned back to her. Judy sent me a picture back, happily holding her mother's certificate on her dining room table. It feels good to return things back to where they belong, even if it was an object that I didn't know I had. I think it, I think a lot of people, as they get older, it becomes very important to them that those some little significant bits of history don't get lost. So I'm sure that's that's why she tried to find someone. And you know, there are people with horses in the Tucson area, so she just took a shot. And yeah. <laughs> as I felt happy to close out this mystery and put the cardboard back in the frame, I saw a message. On the back of the stage picture was a sentence-long note written in pen. Joseph R. Switzer, 22 or 23 years old, 1893 or 1894. So this picture was indeed taken in a Detroit studio one year after he emigrated from Canada. He is my age in this photo. It's hard to let that sink in. Nearly 20 years later, he signs his name on the large Master Horseshoer Certificate. From what my research shows is that Mr. Switzer stopped his farrier profession around 1920, and that year's census, he listed himself working as a machinist at a tractor plant. This is when farrier work in the U.S. dropped significantly. Here's Eric with some final remarks. Back after the cars came, horseshoeing dropped off in this country big time. So there, were, there wasn't such a call for farriers. There wasn't the, the associations and the memberships. This might be why, in Lucille's notes about her grandfather, she said that he returned to his farrier trade later in life. But in the 1910s to the 1940s, horseshoeing went from the busiest to the most quiet time in the U.S. During World War I, there were over one million European horses. Most of them were shooed for the war effort. Then, when cars became popular, the anvils went cold, and the horseshoeing profession almost disappeared. Music 
It just shows how vital horseshoeing was for the world, as we have trusted horses to win wars and races, having them hold humans or supplies. It couldn't have been done without the horseshoers making these large animals feel comfortable. Though Lewis, Pat's husband, had a different trajectory doing farrier work a hundred years after Mr. Switzer, he knew he loved horses from a young age. That was the main point Pat wanted me to remember. The last question I asked Pat was about Lewis's legacy. Well, if horses had tails that would wag and they saw his truck drive up, they'd be wagging. So I guess the legacy is is that he gave those big monster brutes who were so sweet and loving, Uh he gave them as much care and comfort as any really good doctor would do to his patients. He really loved his animals and their welfare was way more important than his. And at that, I can put this mystery to rest. From Eric the historian, to Pat and her husband, and finally to Judy and her horseshoeing heritage, it has been such a rewarding adventure. Thank you for joining us on another Object Obscura journey, where every object has a story. This was a production of the Obscurity Podcast Network. Thank you to Martha Jones and Eric Nygaard from the American Farriers Association. Go check them out at AmericanFarriers.org, where they deal with farrier certifications and have conventions every year. Thanks to Pat Hirsch for sharing her stories about her husband and being patient with me. Finally, thank you to Judy Sullivan and her brother Doug for sharing their family heritage. Additional thanks to Fariba Mitchell at Patriot House Antiques and Darius Kruger at the Tucson School of Horseshoeing. I also want to thank all the young farriers out there, specifically Creighton Dutton, for continuing the legacy of horseshoeing in Arizona. This was an Anchor Distributed podcast. Written, edited, scored, mixed, and fact-checked by me. The theme song is Behind the Walls by my great friend Nathany. Check out her amazing music on Spotify and Apple Music. She does solo stuff with the name Nathany and has a group called SZN. Additional music by Lillian L. Conald. All other song and archival credits are in the description. Go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes to give us a rating. I love feedback. It's what helps the show get better. You can also give us a donation. There's a PayPal donation button on our website, object-obscura.com. Anything helps us out to investigate more amazing stories in the future. We hope that we can travel to meet each person face-to-face in future episodes. Want to reach out to us? Well, send us a message on Facebook at Object Obscura Podcast, Instagram at Object.Obscura, and Twitter at Object Obscura. It can be about an object you want discussed on the show or about anything obscure. I will post all the pictures of this episode's object and the people you heard voices from on each platform. Next episode comes out in one week, September 24th. Here is a nutty clue about another staged photo. They say that... Uh, when he passed away in 1941, that he was $100,000 in debt. See you then.